Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 27. That's our text this morning. Bill talked about uh, those nights when you awaken and uh, sense the Lord's proximity. <clears throat> those are wonderful times, just uh, knowing that He's there and available to us. But there are also those nights when you awaken and uh, you feel terribly alone. God does not seem to be near. He seems uh, to have no interest in us. He seems to have abandoned us. Charlie Brown says in one of uh, one of uh, the recent segments that I saw, sometimes I lie awake at night and I ask, why am I here? Then a voice says, where are you? Here, I say. Where is here, says the voice. Wave your hand so I can see you. Charlie Brown sighs, the nights are getting longer. Uh, David would have understood the nights were uh, getting longer and darker for him. We enter into a period of David's life when he was profoundly disturbed, depressed. At the end of his rope, he had no energy to go on. He and Saul had been playing their deadly game of... of uh, Hide and seek for months. Uh, Saul's men now knew all of David's haunts and hiding places. There was simply no place uh, where David could hide. He could run, but he could not hide. He had the responsibility for feeding 600 hungry men every day. Uh, a group about the size of this group here this morning. Along with their wives and children during these uh during the months that preceded this particular event, the families of these men had joined them. They had no way to uh, sustain themselves other than by looting and hunting. And every day there was uh, the big question in David's mind, how can I feed this uh, this horde? How can I protect them? How can I provide for them? And David was just getting more and more depressed. The songs that are assigned to this uh, period, Psalm 10 and Psalm 13, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, other of his poems, are sad songs, are all in the minor key. They have in common the uh, imagery of the wilderness and the chase and the hunt. and uh, Saul, like a predacious uh, animal, chasing David down. But the one overarching feature, I think, is David's discouragement comes through loud and clear. Why, O Lord, he says, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He he writes in Psalm 22. Uh, David had reached the end of his rope. He just couldn't take it anymore. We understand there are those times that we simply come to the end of ourselves. We don't have the physical, emotional, or spiritual resources to deal with the uh, stress of our circumstances. And we just throw up our hands in despair. We give up. And that's what David did. I'm so glad that uh, biblical men and women are painted uh, warts and all. 
in Scripture. I need uh, a failure or two to look up to every once in a while. Uh, If uh, these uh, men and women always uh, acted in great strength and faith, it would be depressing to me. But uh, these are real people. They're not angels. We see their humanity, all of their flaws and foibles and failures and Here's uh, one of those circumstances in David li- David's life when he just he just gives up. I can't take it anymore. He says, "I've had it. Enough is enough." And uh, he fled into the arms of his enemies. He thought that uh, that was better shelter than the shelter of the wings of the Almighty. Let me read verse 27, uh, chapter 27. It's a very short chapter. David thought to himself, "One of these days." I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. The way that phrase, I will escape, is put in the text, the text that the writer of 1 Samuel originally wrote down, signifies great haste. This was a precipitous decision. Best thing I can do, he says, the good thing for me is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maach, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Perhaps he thought, as uh, he had earlier uh, considered, that uh, the Philistines would uh, do his dirty work for him. They would kill him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of your country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since became one of the royal cities of Judah after this time. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes and Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And I say, liar, liar, pants on fire. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought he might inform on us and say this is what David did. And this was his Practice. Hebrews suggests a studied policy, cold, calculating decision. This was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. This is God's free spirit now in servitude to a pagan. Uh, king. 
So I read through this passage uh, this last week. I was struck by the opening statement David said in his heart. Our text uh, says he thought to himself, but uh, David is just talking to his heart. He didn't take counsel of uh, any of his friends, Gad, the prophet, or the priests. Didn't consult the Urim and Thurim. He didn't ask God. He just made the decision all on his own. He said, it's all up with me. I can't stand it any longer. I'm, I'm going to have to flee to Philistia. He decided under the circumstances that was the best thing to do. You have to remember God's assurances to David. He had told him over and over and over again that he was safe in the land. He'd been told to to take a stand in the land, to raise his standard there, that he would someday be the king of Judah and Israel. And that assurance had been confirmed over and over again by his friends, by Samuel and uh, by Jonathan and by Saul himself and by Gad and, and by Abigail. You may remember her comment uh, back in chapter 25. She said to David, The Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a, of a sling. It was impossible for God to lie or to forget his his covenant with David, but David panicked and ran. The shelter of Philistia was better than the shadow of of God's wings. So David and his 600 men went over to uh, Kish. You, you may recall his prior contact with this man. We assume that, that this is the same Akish before whom he embarrassed himself some months before and he ran and before him, panicked and acted as though he was insane, embarrassed himself before the entire court, was driven from the court because Akish considered him to be a, a madman. But now he was no longer a solitary refugee. He was the leader of a powerful group of mercenaries, a band, formidable band of, of warriors. And Akish thought, now this is someone that I can engage in my service, and he'll fight uh, on my behalf against the uh, Israelites. And so he was... He was taken in along with his uh, with his family. David was safe for a while in in Gath, but uh, it cramped his style. Uh, he felt the pressure of of the king. He lived within the confines of that city state. He had some freedom to come and go, but uh, his uh, his freedoms were limited. And so David made a request of, of King Achish. He asked that he be given a piece of land in, in Philistia. That was Achish's uh, privilege. Uh, he was somewhat like uh, a feudal lord during the medieval period. He, although he, he reigned over a city-state, all the lands around that city-state and all of the uh, smaller towns, the country towns, as David calls them here, were part and parcel of his uh, uh, his area, and so he he had the the right to give David a piece of land, and ironically, he gave him a city that had once been an Israelite city. Gave him the uh, little little town called Ziklag, which was to the south of Gath, situated uh, well for David's purposes. He was far away from Saul, far enough away from uh, Achish that he wasn't under underfoot, 
on the borders of Judah, where he could keep up his contacts with his uh, kinsmen. It was a city that had been captured by the Philistines, taken away from the tribe of Simeon. During the time of Joshua, the city of Ziklag was given to Judah, and then it was handed on to Simeon. Uh, it was probably a very small town, as well suited for their use, and then the Philistines drove the uh, tribe of Simeon out of that uh, city, and it was given to David. Wonderful opportunity. It was a ready-made city with the houses still standing and the fields there that he could cultivate, and David and his family and his 600 men and their families moved into, into town and set up housekeeping, and they were able to relax, and for the first time in their life, and the first time in their uh, recent life, they didn't have to uh, loot and, and hunt for their food. Men and women could work in the fields. The children could play with safety in the streets. The elderly people could sit and chat. It was just a wonderful opportunity for everyone to rest. Just after call it for months, they had been hounded and harassed, and they were all weary and tired. And it, was a, it was a respite. It was a resting place, a little corner of peace in David's world. He could settle down. But David was never one for for the quiet life. He, li- he liked to be in the action. He was a man of passion. He, he couldn't sit still, couldn't settle down. Uh, years ago, I came across a quotation from uh, Pascal, the 16th century uh, philosopher. He said this, So when I set myself now and then to consider the various distractions of men, the toils and dangers to which they expose themselves in the court or in the camp, whence arise so many passions, such daring, and even such evil exploits, I have discovered that all the restlessness of men arises from one thing only, that they're unable to stay quietly in their own chamber. Hence it comes that play, the society of women, war, and offices of state are sought after. Hence it comes that men so love noise and, and movement. Ah, yes. Here's David. His restlessness is catching up with him. He's got to do something. He can't enjoy the peace and quiet of, of that place. And, and what you begin to see in David at this point is a slow and steady deterioration of his life with God. There were no songs that were written in Ziglag, no poems. Scholars tell us that he mastered a a new instrument there, the giddeth. We we get our word guitar from that word. It was a a Philistine harp that's named for the city of Gath, and that instrument was probably developed there, and he mastered uh, the use of that uh, instrument uh, traditionally. That's what's said. But no poems. How how can uh, how could David sing the so- songs of the Lord in a in a foreign land? He he had withdrawn from the Lord. He was he was on his own, and he was beginning to feel that sense of desolation that sets in when when we depart from the living God. And uh, one thing led to another. One sin aroused another. Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. When we begin to act in, in disobedience, we can always expect to become more firmly entrenched in our sin. And this is what happened uh, to David. Chronicles tells us that about this time, large numbers of Judeans began to gather to David at Ziklag. Now, on the surface, everything looked good. He looked prosperous and on top of things. 
you, you don't see the declension underneath. And there were literally hundreds of warriors that defected from, Is- from Israel's army, from Saul's uh, reign, came over to David at that time. The story is told in Chronicles. There were the, those uh, famous ambidextrous uh, Benjamites that could fight with either their right or their left hand. And they're described as warriors with faces like lions. There were hundreds of them that came to David with their their families. So he had this uh, even a more powerful fighting force, and here was a resource to be put to use. He couldn't, uh, couldn't, he couldn't rest, and so he began to wage war on the tribes that dwelled just to the south of Israel. They're described in the text here as living between Judah and Shur. Uh, Shur is a Hebrew word for wall, and uh, we're told that the Egyptians were so concerned about the encroachment of these uh, desert tribes that they'd build a wall, much like China's great wall, to keep these uh, nomadic tribesmen out of Egypt. They were terrified of them. And uh, they had uh, begun to harass uh, the settlers in in Judah, and David took upon himself to to begin to wage war with uh, these people, the uh, uh, Gerzites and the Geshurites and the Amalekites, who from ancient times were Israel's enemies. These were their hereditary Enemies, and he began to uh, engage them in, in in battle, and to defeat them, and to burn their villages, and to destroy entire populations. He massacred the population of uh, village after village, and, and looted and plundered. And chapter thirty tells us that he then distributed that plunder to his kinsmen in southern uh, Judah. But there's a sour note here: this notion of massacre the settled policy of annihilating entire populations because, because he knew that uh, they would they would tattle, they would tell on him. The word would get back to uh, Kish. And so he massacred entire villages, men, women, and children, so unlike David. Uh, something is, 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 has gone very wrong here in David's life. Well, David was... Um, Subject to the king, who's his liege. So he had to report to Akish from time to time. And when he would report, he would lie. Akish would say to him, where have you gone raiding today? And David said, oh, against the uh, Judeans and, and their allies. And it was a lie. And again, so unlike David, he's caught in this terrible deception. And lie led to lie, and deceit led to deceit, to the point that he completely deceived the Philistine king. The king said, ah, he's made himself uh, odious to Israel. Literally, he, he stinks. He smells in their, in, in their nostrils. and He's on my side now, and he's now my uh, servant. And David found himself in an enormous amount of trouble. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, uh, he was almost forced to go to war with his, uh, with his people against the Judeans on the side of of the Philistines, it was only the goodness of God that bailed him out of that uh, uh, out of that uh, battle. And we're also told in chapter thirty that when he came back after being relieved of that responsibility, he and his men came back to discover that the tribes to the south of Judah had retaliated and had attacked the city of Ziklag. It was unprotected, and they had utterly destroyed the city, sacked it burned it. There was nothing left but smoldering ruins, and their women and children had been taken captive by the uh, by these uh, wild uh, 
tribesmen. It was a terrible time for David. His uh, men turned against him. They wanted to lynch him. He, uh, he lost their affection and, his, and, and, and their loyalty for a period of time. And again, it was only by the grace of God that he was able to uh, recover. God does suffer fools uh, uh, gladly, as we've seen over and over again. When we repent of our sin and turn to him, he's always available not only to forgive, to, but begin to begin to set things right to the extent that they can be set right uh, in, in our fallen world. But it was just an, an awful time, terrible time for David. And perhaps what was worse, not only did he just, uh, suffer on a physical level the loss of, of their city, which apparently was never rebuilt, but uh, he introduced into Israel the culture of the Philistines. By taking those men and women into that culture and exposing their children to that idolatrous uh, setting, he introduced into Israel a love of Philistine culture. Uh, I've mentioned it before. Our word in English, Philistine, uh, is used to people that are crass and crude and uncultured. But the Philistines were anything but uncultured. They came from the Aegean Sea. They are uh, they have ties with the, the uh, great Minoan culture from Crete, and uh, they were uh, they were very attractive, impressive people, beautiful people, winsome on the surface, but they were idolatrous and and evil, wicked to the core. And uh, Israel was attracted by their culture, even in intermarry. Uh, Israelite men for the next 600 years were attracted to Philistine women. In the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had to deal with that issue again. Had the problem developed again, had to be dealt with, the, as he describes it. The children, your children, speak the language of Ashdod. In other words, they had picked up the culture of, of the Philistines. So the, the, the point I want to make is simply this, that when... We make these decisions. They often are extremely damaging to our families, to ourselves, not only damaging physically, economically, uh, materially, but also emotionally and, and uh, spiritually. Now, the, the, there, there are those times, like David, when we get down. Even, even the best get, get depressed. Sometimes those, those periods of discouragement, times uh, when the world seems bleak, when God seems to have abandoned us, are simply the result of our own failure to cultivate our spiritual lives. We let them lie dormant. Uh, we, we can never be static in our Christian lives. We're either growing toward God or we're growing away from him. And if we're slothful and we neglect to cultivate our relationship to God, inevitably there is a spiritual depression that begins to set in as we separate ourselves from the Lord and we lose that sense of proximity and closeness and the freshness of His, of His presence. Other times our discouragement can be the result of assaults of the evil one upon us. Um, doubt and discouragement are not necessarily failures of faith. Sometimes they're simply an assault upon our faith, a temptation uh, to give way. And sometimes our discouragement is simply the result of weariness and tiredness. We've all gone through those times when the pressures of life just become too much for us and we're over-adrenalized and 
underslept and overcriticized and underappreciated and and overworked and 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 we and we just we just get down. We're discouraged and everything seems bleak. God seems to to have abandoned us. There are a number of reasons why we get discouraged. But um, the one lesson from this passage, and the one thing I would like to leave with me and, and with you, is simply this. We should never, ever make decisions when we're down. That the, the, Our bad days are heydays for the devil. Those are the days that he can give us counsel that... Uh, uh, can utterly disrupt our lives and lead us into decisions, the consequences of which we have to pay for uh, for uh, for years. You know, I I wonder, for example, how many single people have decided at some point in their life that they simply cannot endure the prospect of living alone for the rest of their lives. They're tired of, of uh, living by themselves. And, and uh, they just they give up, and they decide to marry someone that they know well is not uh, in God's uh, God's will for them. But uh, it's uh, they they just they make a rash and precipitous and hasty decision simply because they're they're tired, they're weary, uh, they're down. I wonder how many men or, and women have have resigned from jobs, good jobs, good-paying jobs, jobs that they enjoy, but there has been a time of pressure. They've been misunderstood. Uh, people have expectations of them that they cannot meet, and in a, a fit of, of frustration and unbelief, they, they, they quit. They walk away from a job that that has been satisfying in the past and is meeting their needs, and, and they're left without any job at all. And then they have that... Uh, the, frustrating task of trying to find a job in a in a uh, an economy where jobs are very difficult to find i wonder how many men and women in difficult marriages after a big blow up just decide at that moment to walk out and to leave their marriage and then they find themselves single parents living very close to the poverty line having to provide for themselves and they look back with deep deep regret over the decision that they've made. I wonder how many people in ministry have at some point in their lives just decided to walk away from a fruitful ministry simply because it's a time of pressure and the circumstances are very difficult and, and hard. We've, we've all had those times when life seems so dreary and we're so down, we're so tired, and, and God does not seem to be nearby and that's when we're tempted by the evil one to make decisions that are deleterious and destructive, the consequences of which we may pay for for the rest of our lives. And if I could leave any lesson with you, it's this one. Never make a decision uh, when, when you're down. When you're physically tired, when you're emotionally unstrung, when you're spiritually distraught, when you're failing in faith, never make a decision, because that can be uh, the, the the results of that decision uh, can be terribly destructive. I uh, I uh, read something recently uh, from uh, a work by a 16th century Basque Christian by the name of Ignatius, and uh, 
he pointed out that there are only two conditions in the Christian life. We, we find ourselves in one or the other from time to time. He says we are either in consolation or desolation. Uh, I can't, uh, can't think of any other conditions. We're either up or we're down. We're either on a roll or we're in the dumps. Uh, there's no uh, middle ground, it seems. And uh, Ignatius defines the period he calls consolation this way. When the soul is aroused to a love for its creator and Lord. When faith, hope, and love, and interior joy inspire the soul to peace and quiet in our Lord. It's a wonderful time. Those times when God is giving us eternal consolation. We feel close to him. Uh, We have that sense of his presence. We're aware of his love. We feel good about our relationship with him. We're consoled. It's a time of peace and tranquility and and quietness. And then there are those times of desolation. We all go through them. As I said before, they can be the result of a spiritual failure. Our relationship to God is eclipsed simply because we're not uh, we're not spending adequate time cultivating that relationship. Or it can be a sickness, or it can be a tiredness, or it can be an assault of the evil one upon us, and and we feel desolate. Uh, Ignatius describes. That period this way, when there is darkness of soul, turmoil of mind, a strong inclination to earthly things, restlessness, resulting from disturbances and temptations leading to loss of faith, we find ourselves apathetic, tepid, sad, and separated, as it were, from our Lord. Now listen, this is what he says. In time of desolation, one should never make a change. In time of desolation, one should never make a change, but stand firm and constant in the resolution and decision which guided him the day before the desolation, or to the decision which he observed in the preceding consolation. There are those times that we sense God's presence and we're full of faith and we make decisions. We, as my father used to say, we drive a stake in the ground. We make a decision that becomes a parameter, a fixed reference point for our life, that we will live our life this way. We will follow God in this way. That's a decision that we make in a time of consolation. Ignatius says, don't uh, don't change your mind when the times of, of desolation come. Stand firm and constant in the resolution and decision which guided you the day before the desolation. For just as the good spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, guides and consoles us in consolation, so in desolation the evil spirit, the evil one, guides and counsels. Following the counsel of this latter spirit, one can never find the correct way to a right decision. What he's saying is that Satan works through our weariness. He works through our depression. He works through our discouragement to to get us to make uh, precipitous decisions that have disastrous results and His point is simply this. Don't make any major decisions. Don't change your life. Don't do anything when you're in those down periods. Just stand fast and in your mind go back to the decisions and resolutions that you made in the cold light of day in faith before before the Lord. Now, we just have to know that uh, we're human beings. We're not angels. We get weary. We get tired. 
we get discouraged and those times of weariness are simply not the times to make decisions. I think of Elijah. You may recall our study in the life of Elijah a couple of years ago, back in 1992. Elijah had that exhilarating experience on Mount Carmel where he faced off with the priests of Baal and the priestesses of Asherah and he won a mighty victory that day, but it had been a been a long, hard day, weary and over-adrenalized. His body was worn out. And the strength of that victory, he was so excited, he ran all the way from Carmel to Jezreel, 27 miles. He ran faster than, than Ahab could make it in his chariot. By the time he got to Jezreel, he, he was wasted. He was worn out emotionally and, and physically. And he was all excited about what he was going to do in Jezreel. The revival that would come, the banishment of, of, of Jezebel, and, and Jezebel sent a message to him that she was going to kill him, and he took off to the south, started running to, toward the Sinai, and just, just completely collapsed spiritually. Why? Worn out, weary, he's discouraged, depressed. God uh, saw him, sent his angels to care for him. Elijah fell asleep under a broom tree. The angel nudged him, woke him up, fed him, told him to go back to sleep, let him sleep. Woke him up, fed him, put him back to sleep. It's a good reminder that sometimes our uh, our spiritual weariness is really based on physical weariness, weariness, worn out, not eating adequately, not sleeping well. And we don't have any energy left, no resources left for coping. The most spiritual thing we can do at a time like that is, is to go to bed, eat, eat a good meal, and, and hit the sack and rest. And then God can begin to deal with the deeper issues of, of unbelief, you see. And uh, during those times when, when we're worn out, we just need to wait. Wait for those times when God can, can begin to instruct us. Let me uh, read something that F.B. Meyer wrote. Uh, Meyer wrote back in the 18th century, and, and his language is a little quaint. And sometimes, uh, in quoting Meyer, I know it's easy to lose the thread of his argument. But uh, I think uh, his comment on this particular passage, First Samuel 27, is apt. He says this: Never act in a panic. Calm yourself and be still. Force yourself into the quiet of your closet until the pulse beats normally and the scare has ceased to perturb. When you're most eager to act is the time when you will make the most pitiable mistakes. You see, so often we think we, we have to act. We have to make a decision. And it has to be now. But it doesn't have to be now. We can wait. He says, when you are most eager to act is the time when you will make the most pitiable mistakes. Do not say in your heart what you will or will not do, but wait upon God until he makes known his way. So long as that way is hidden, it is clear that there is no need of action and that he accounts himself responsible for all the results, keeping thee where thou art. You understand what he's saying? If you don't know what to do, don't do anything. Just wait. Let God take the consequences. He takes responsibility for those days when you do not need when you do not know what to do, wait. Just wait on Him. You know, and looking back on my life, I have to say that that some of the most disastrous decisions I've made, the ones which I have paid for most uh, 
most dearly are the decisions that were precipitous and in a hurry and when I was pressured and when I felt that I had to make a decision when I did not seek counsel from God or from others, I did not wait upon him. You know the old adage, haste makes waste, and and the parallel adage, act in haste, repent in leisure. We we know those those proverbs are true. And so my word to you this morning and to myself is, is simply this. When you're weary, when you're down, when you're discouraged, when you when your faith is depleted, when you think you cannot go on, those are not times to make decisions. Those are the times to simply cling to the Lord and wait for his time. David, I believe, out of this experience, learned to pray. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, our hasty actions and our tendency to to hurry and to feel that uh, that we have to do something to, to better our state, to think that, uh, that what we do and 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 uh, the results of our decisions are the things that will that will set things right. Help us help us to wait for your instruction. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can abide under the shelter of your wings. Thank you that our destiny is fixed, that ultimately no decision that we make is going to touch that eternal relationship that we have with you. We want to make the most of our life here on on earth and use the resources that you've given to us, use our gifts, use our lives in in ways that will touch others for eternity. Guard us, Lord, from those decisions that would in any way hinder and hamper us and frustrate your working through us. Give us the grace and the patience to wait. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.